Okay, the Bible readings are from Colossians 1.24 right through to um, chapter 2, verse 7. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love and that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delighted to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is, your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Well, good morning again. Feeling the love. <laughs> if you'd like to, uh, if you grab the little handout, you'll find there uh, some points that I'm going to speak to. You're also going to find on the back an issue that came up, you may have noticed in the passage where you kind of went, what? Uh, when Diana read, um, I'm not going to answer that issue at all. It's on the back of the sheet. Not read it now, read it later. Uh, but that's there. Now, I reckon as Aussies, we are pretty sus of ambitious people, yes? You come across these people uh, and uh, you want to partake in the national pastime, don't you, of, uh, of cutting them down, tall poppy syndrome. We as Australians find ambition a little unnerving, I think, a little threatening. Uh, we're not like Americans. Uh, Americans, it's all sort of ever onwards and upwards and bigger and better. Us Aussies, we're a little bit more, um, perhaps, apathetic. I went to, uh, to Bible college with a guy, and he said to me, quote, 51% is 1% too much. I've tried too hard. 51%, 1% too much. Ambition. Is it good? Is it bad? Maybe, maybe we're apathetic when it comes to ambition because we kind of see through it. Maybe we're realistic or perhaps even cynical about it because we see that so many of the things that people strive for are actually empty. 
They actually don't deliver. So think about it. One of Australia's greatest swimming champions, Grant Hackett. He's been in the media for all the wrong reasons. People have largely forgotten that this man once held, I think, the 200, 400, 800 and 1500 metre world records simultaneously. One of the greatest swimmers of all times, but the glory is fleeting and ultimately empty. We've seen that he has lost so much as he's lost his life, really. He's thrown away the glory that he achieved. It all comes crashing down. But can I suggest to the cynics, the realists amongst us, I reckon we all do have ambitions. Uh, We just set our targets modestly low, don't we? So they hide that ambition. So so no one would look at us and say, you're massively ambitious because we're just striving to be, you know, just okay. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. But I would like to suggest that we all have ambitions. How would you tell what your ambition was? Maybe you're thinking, I'm not ambitious. I don't have, I don't have these things. Well, two things. Two symptoms that will let you work out where your ambition lies. One is how you spend your time. Second one, no surprises, how you spend your money. The two resources that are so valuable, especially time, will tell you what you're aiming for. How do you spend your days? What do you pursue? What occupies your dreams? How do you deploy those key assets of time and money? And when you work that out, you'll work out what you're aiming for when it comes to living a life that is, sounds a little corny, but a life that's flourishing, a life of abundance, a life that has significance. Now, the Apostle Paul this morning in the passage that Diana read for us, he is speaking and modelling for us passion and ambition. Did you, did you see that? Did you hear Paul talk about his goals, his drive? And that passion, that passion has stretched and shaped 2,000 years of world history. The Apostle Paul was part of the early Christian movement and set an agenda that set Western civilization on a trajectory that it is still on today. We are sitting here in the hall partially because of the Apostle Paul and what he did. Ambition can have huge impacts, but only when it is rightly directed, only when its goal is something that is actually worth achieving. I'm not saying that everything else is rubbish, but everything else doesn't last. Paul here has latched onto the one goal that will truly last, not just for this life, but for eternity. The one goal that, if achieved, will shape lives to give you that life that is the life of flourishing. And what was it? Paul sums up that goal. He sums it up in Two words in English, one word in the original Greek. Verse 28 there, he talks about fully mature. Now, if you're probably aged below about 60, you're thinking mature equals boring. Is that right? 
you know? And so you could buy T-shirts online. Immature, the word that boring people use to describe fun people. You know, I think we do live in a culture that looks at maturity as something that is, um, you know, we kind of don't want it to happen to us. One of our, one of our nine o'clockers celebrated her 40th birthday today. Now, who here wants to turn 40? The only people who are saying yes are people over 40, can I say? <laughs> you want to become less mature, but we don't look at it. it, it it's funny. I've been reading through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs tells me that grey hair is the crown of a righteous life. And for those of us with a lack of hair, that's probably a crown of a righteous life as well. Uh, Or the lack of a crown, maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to dig myself any deeper into that hole. But we do our best to cover our grey hairs, don't we? We don't want to be old. We don't want to be mature. We want to be Peter Pan. We never want to grow up. We want life to be fun. But can I say... Most of us here will probably be aware that Paul didn't write his letter to the Colossians in English. So the English of his day, the the, the language that pretty much everyone spoke, was Greek, okay, around that Mediterranean area. So if I was a Jew, I probably would have spoken Aramaic. Perhaps I might have spoken Hebrew, uh, but I would have spoken Greek, Everyone spoke Greek. Alexander the Great is to blame for that one. Uh, He took it all over the place uh, and it became the language of the Roman Empire. And when you translate something from one language to another, those of us who've studied languages, and there's a few of us amongst us, very rarely do words line up perfectly, that this word translates to this word perfectly. The idea that Paul here, when he speaks in our English translations of being fully mature, is a word, teleos. There's your Greek word for the morning. The word of the morning is teleos. Uh, And it's more than just maturity. It can mean perfection or something that reaches the highest standard. There's maturity, fully developed, something that achieves its goal. And can I suggest that if if I was the Apostle Paul in this day and age, Uh, saying this, you could sum it up. His goal is that people live the life that God made them for. His desire is that people, they become the people that God made them to be. And that's a very real desire for our culture, isn't it? We have a word for it. It's a bit of a mantra these days authenticity isn't it you've got to be you and that's given us little cute little memey things like this you know always be yourself unless you can be a unicorn then always be a unicorn Uh, and you can do the same thing with batman and superman and all those other ones as well you can find them all online maybe spend a meaningless afternoon entertaining yourself you know we have tafe ads that tell us that we can take a different path of uni don't be like everyone else who gets in through one way you can go another way no disrespect to those who've got to uni through tafe but i don't know how that is being yourself but we're told that we have to be ourselves aren't we We have to find what it is that actually will give us this life of flourishing, this perfect life, this life that we were made to have. And our society tells us that we have to find that answer 
within ourselves, don't we? That's where our answer is. No one can tell you what your purpose is. No one can tell you what your meaning is. No one can tell you where to find that perfect, that complete, that goal-achieving life. But the problem with that is you've got to do it in a way that our society is happy for. So Jean-Luc Picard, one of my great heroes, someone's, someone's ripped him off here. Society says, be yourself. Society, but not like that. You've got to be yourself in an approved way. Otherwise, we might find you a little bit difficult to deal with. And so to say something that our society disagrees with is out of limits. So we become an individual just like every other individual. And that is there. But I think the Bible has a much better answer. Paul has a much better answer than finding who you are to be from within. And it's there, it's the next two words in that that verse. That we are to be fully mature in Christ. Now, if you've been reading your Bible, particularly the Apostle Paul, those two words, in Christ, are incredibly theologically loaded. On one level, you think, what does that even mean, being mature in Christ? Let me try and summarise it for you. I could spend probably a whole sermon series, not just a sermon on this topic. So I'm going to try and give it to you in about two minutes. Okay? I suggest that this idea can be summed up that if we are in Christ, his past, his present and his future are ours. Do we get that? So if I am in Christ, Christ's past is mine, Christ's present is mine, and Christ's future is mine. When we look at Romans starting next week, you'll see this unpacked much more fully. But let me illustrate. So what does it mean for Christ's past to be mine? What Christ did that we just celebrated at Easter through his death and resurrection, that work, that perfect, complete work of salvation is mine. And the Bible will actually tell me that I died with Christ. That as I put my faith in Christ, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says those exact words. Romans 5 tells us that we have been raised with Christ through faith. So Christ's victory over sin and death is our victory over sin and death by faith. What does it mean for his present? So when God the Father looks at God the Son, there is nothing but love and acceptance and joy, delight. In Bible study, we've been looking at a series called the Sonship Series. And one of the things that I think many of us will actually confess to have been somewhat pleasantly surprised about, you know, how do you think God, when he looks at you, what's the expression on his face, if, if you can excuse the, the illustration? Is he smiling? Most of us, I think, we said, you know, God, God tolerates us. And he's a bit cranky with us most of the time because we're not really... But the Bible tells us that Christ's present as a beloved son is our present as a beloved child, that we have been adopted 
into his family and that God delights in us. His present is our present. Paul, just a couple of verses later at the start of chapter 3, tells us to set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ, who is our life, is. Where our life is hidden with him. Christ's present is our present. We are beloved children. And Christ's future, his glorification, when he is seen by all, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, the Bible tells us that when Christ reigns over all, we will reign with him. Just a verse earlier, it speaks of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Not a, I hope I'll get there, but biblical hope is true hope, is hope that has already been delivered. Why can we trust our future? It's because we have the past and the present already now. And so Paul tells us this life, this life that we were made to have, this life that we were created for, this life, Christ died and rose again that we might have in him. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? Where do we find this life? We find it in Christ. How do you get it? For most of us, we know exactly how we get it. But in case this is something new to you, I want to explain. We get it through the proclamation of the gospel. So Paul tells us at the start of this verse that Jesus Christ is the one that, we, that he proclaims. Jesus Christ, that's a shorthand way of saying the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we actually see is that it is news that is announced. This is what God has done, not what you must do. This is what God has done. Live in light of it. Put your trust in him because of it, through it. Recognize that in the gospel, in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been given everything that we need, that we can stand as not merely forgiven sinners, but co-heirs with Christ, beloved children of our Heavenly Father. That's the news that Paul announced. That's the news that he responded to when Christ confronted him on the road, when Ananias spoke to him in Damascus. That's the news that if you are a Christian today, you have heard and you have said, yes, I trust that. Not just that I know it here, but that I trust it. Trust is more than just intellectual assent. Anyone ever been abseiling? I look at this, it kind of makes my hands go a bit funny because I'm not really that good at heights. I like abseiling though. Why? Because I trust the rope. I trust the rope. What does it mean to trust the gospel, to trust Christ? It means that we don't look to anything else 
as the source of that life. We don't look to anything else for our standing as forgiven children of God. We don't look to anything else apart from Christ. When we put our trust in him, we rest in his completed work. We know that there is now, as Romans 8 verse 1 tells us, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As the end of Romans tells us, there is nothing that can say, and Paul lists thing after thing after thing after thing that can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ. Why? Because it depends not upon us, but upon him, upon his finished work. And if we are in Christ through faith, it is ours. And that life is ours. And when you see that, as Paul sees that, as many, if not most of us here, see that, it changes your life completely. Start of the Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes about the, the other Christians who were scared witless about him. Because this is the guy that had been going around persecuting them, dragging them into prison, putting them to death. And they give thanks. Why? Because this one, this one now preaches the gospel that he tried to repress. Hearing and responding in faith turns your life upside down. It takes away everything else that you trust in, every other source of life. If you look for flourishing apart from Christ, you may find things that look good in the short term, but they never deliver. Grant Hackett, on the day that he mounted the dais, having won gold medal after gold medal, world record after world record, he would have felt on top of the world. If you spoke to him now, where is he? I imagine nowhere near the top of the world. But Paul is saying, this is a glory. This is a life. This is a hope. This is a future that can never be taken. And so he tells the Colossians that just as they received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Where you started, where you found the streams of living water, where you found life, don't ever go away from that. The world is a desert and there is only one oasis. And that oasis is Christ. Don't ever leave it. And Paul gives us an image here. There's actually two images kind of blended together. The first is a tree image. A tree, he tells us that we had to be rooted down deep into Christ, into the gospel. And I think what he's doing here is he's drawing on Psalm 1, where he speaks of the righteous man, the one who is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding it fruit in seas, a leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The life that they are given is coming up from below. It's coming up out of the gospel of Christ. And Paul says, like a tree, put your roots down deep. Draw the nutrients up. Draw the life up. 
get the security and the strength that only the gospel can give. If you try to draw out of anything else, you'll be like cut flowers. They look good for a while and then they end up in the compost. Are you a tree drawing out of the nutrients and the stability of the gospel of Christ? Or are you a cut flower with a semblance of life just waiting to wither and fade? Paul uses that image rooted down deep, but also like a building rising up. So he tells us there in 2 verse 7, he says, rooted and built up in him like a temple built on a foundation. A temple, an image that Paul and other Bible writers use again and again and again, amongst whom God dwells by his spirit, built firmly on the foundation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, never leave it. So what do we do? How do we stay? How do we send our roots down deep? How do we see that our building is built up in Christ? Every now and again, Christians get excited. I think I've talked about these guys before. They do social research and they do this amazing stuff where they just confirm what the Bible tells us, which is wonderful because it means I can say two people here, not only God's word tells us this, but social scientists say this. And they went out a while ago and they, they tried to work out and they, they talked to people in more than a thousand churches through the US about their growth in Christ their roots down deep, their building going up. What was it that really drove that? What activities, what part did they play? Obviously, God is sovereign in this, but it's not a situation where we wake up one morning, oh, I trust God more. Oh, I know him better. The process of growth in Christ is a cooperative process between God through his spirit and the regenerate believer, the one that has been born again and made alive. And God works with us to see Christ formed in us. He empowers it, as Paul says. He strives energetically with all the power that Christ works in him. But you notice Paul sees no contradiction between God's work and his work. What is it that we do? What are the key things that if you hear this morning, and I hope... We've got a church full of people here this morning saying, yes, you want to grow in Christ. What do you do? Two things. Two things are absolutely critical. No surprises. Read your Bible and pray. Anyone surprised? The Bible tells you that. Social scientists have proved that. That people who say that they're growing in Christ are people who are regularly in the word. Not just studying it as an academic text, but asking, how is God speaking to me in this? And as they pray, they're not just sort of listing off a shopping list. They're actually engaging with God about what they're learning and they're confessing and they're glorifying God. They're working in two ways in a conversation with God. 
When they talk to people who feel that they've stagnated in their faith, what have those people stopped doing? No surprises. They've stopped reading their Bible. They've stopped praying. And when they start growing again, what's changed? They've started reading their Bibles again and they've started praying. It's not rocket scientist, rocket science. It's seen and it's the testimony of Scripture that we encounter God in his word. His word is living and active, that we know him truly in that and he invites us to respond to him in prayer. And as we grow, we move from being fed to feeding ourselves, to feeding others. So when you're born, not many of you sort of popped out of the womb and said, hi, mum, hi, dad, where's the fridge? Um, Maybe it felt like you did, but um, that's not what kids do. They are very dependent. Newborn Christians are very dependent. Generally, they're learning like sponges from everyone around them. But as they grow, as they grow in faith and as we grow physically, in maturity, we become able to provide for ourselves. So my one-year-old child didn't say to me, hey, Dad, do you mind if I make myself some breakfast? But my teenagers, they don't even ask. They just do it. They look after themselves. And now, amazing, some of them have started cooking for the rest of us. You know, they're feeding others. They're feeding others. That's the same as it is with Christians. We are being fed as babies, as newborn infants, craving pure spiritual milk, Peter says. Then we are to grow to be feeding ourselves and then feeding others. That is how God has actually designed it. And you see it here in Paul because he doesn't go, I found Jesus, I found this life that I'm meant to be living. Great. He then goes and becomes a servant of the church, a servant of the gospel, proclaiming that gospel far and wide. He goes out and he says in verse 29 that he strives with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in him. In verse verse 24, he speaks of the suffering that he goes through for the sake of the church. The apostle Paul is doing everything he can to achieve his ambition that is God's ambition to see men and women, boys and girls, become the people that Christ died for them to be. To come into the faith that Christ opened and made possible through the gospel. The Apostle Paul is so gripped by God's ambition, God's purpose, that that is what he strives for. And God used that powerfully. So, brothers and sisters, where are your roots? What is the foundation like? Is the structure that you build on a firm foundation, as it goes taller, is it going to be held up? Are you sinking your roots down deep into Christ? 
Are you spending time in his word? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you seeking not just to be fed, not just to feed yourself, but to feed others? Beck highlighted that one of the great things we have is lots and lots of kids and young people. What an opportunity there is for us to invest in the lives of others. What a privilege that is. And you know, the funny thing in God's economy is that when you give, he gives to you. When you serve, you are served. When you teach, he teaches you. God honours those. He uses our service to build us up. This is the path to maturity that he has put before us. Will we walk it? How does the ambition that you have compare with Paul's? Does it impact your diary? Does it impact your giving? Or is it just one of those things that you think, oh, well, I've got a bit of time on Sunday. I'll spend some time at church. They're they're not bad, those people. The preacher goes on a bit, but, you know, we can live with that. You know? Or is it something that we go, actually, this is one part of a life lived For Christ, one part of being able to build Christ, not only in the center of my life, but in the lives of others. Because that is where true life is found. That is where flourishing is found. That is where teleos, that perfection, that full maturity, that authenticity is truly found. It's found as we are found in Christ. Christ. So for the Christians here today, I want to encourage you with the words of Paul. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, live your life in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. For those who've still got questions about Jesus, can I say, you need to sort them out. For those of us Christians who are in contact with people who've got questions about Jesus, you need to, like the Apostle Paul, earnestly strive with all of God's power to see that person hear of the fullness of life that is offered out, that life to the full that Jesus promised in Christ. One way you can do that, the life course. Simple way. Give up four nights so that your friend, your family member might be with Christ in eternity. That's a happy exchange. What is it? What is it that you build your life on? Because only Christ can take the weight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for life, life to the full. We thank you that through the gospel of grace, through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, through his victory over death, 
over sin, over evil, through his draining the cup of judgment to the very bottom. Father, we know that we can have life in its full. Father, I pray for those who are yet to put their faith in Christ, yet to trust in his perfect work, yet to hear the words of love and forgiveness that are directed to them through your word. Father, I pray that you would bring them into a saving faith. And Lord, we do ask also for those who have begun in Christ, maybe recently, maybe many, many years ago. Father, let our roots go ever deeper. Let our building be built up, our life be built up in Christ so that we might stand firm, overflowing with thankfulness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.